0: What's up, everybody? Happy Wednesday. It is Mr. Adam X, your host with the leastest hostess with the mostest hostess with the leastest. I'm your host, Mr. Adam X. This is the Pursuit Podcast on the auto Collective. You guys know the spiel. I'm out west skiing. Uh, Salt Lake City is insane. So, for anyone listening who's a Salt Lake, skier utah skier i know your snow is better i'm not gonna argue that but it's chaos uh so i skipped salt lake i'll be there next week and i'm in tahoe uh tahoe's got a special place in my heart uh that's it i i really enjoy tahoe it's fun the snow is heavy it's sunny i have zero complaints we're gonna get right into this episode i've got a couple sponsors to thank and shout out to so we're gonna do that and then we'll talk about my guest so i've got to give it a shout out to cannon mountain uh, if you haven't been to cannon mountain check it out They just started a new, I don't wanna call it a campaign, but we're gonna call it a campaign, Canon Legendary. So go to canonmt.com forward slash legend. And basically that's gonna take you to a landing page that kind of gives you a game to play while you're skiing the mountain. Uh, You hit all the reputable reputable spots at Canon. You get a sticker, collect all the stickers, become a legend of Canon, and enter into winning some rad stuff. So it's really fun. It's a really cool way to explore the mountain if you've never been there. Again, go to www.canonmt.com forward slash legend. That's C A N N O N M T.com forward slash legend again a really fun way to explore the mountain and it kind of shows you around if you've never been there so it's like why wouldn't you do that and you can win a bunch of free stuff who doesn't love free stuff i know we go to the resorts it's a little sketch some of us are 30 something years old and don't have the best health insurance Which is where my next sponsor comes in. Spot insurance. Let's face it. If you're active, the risk of injury is always present. Meaning if we push ourselves too hard, we're one accident away from crushing medical expenses. Not to mention less time spent doing the things we love. That's why Spot partners with ski resorts like Telluride, Taos, organizations like USA Cycling... And events like Red Bull Last Stand to offer injury insurance with lift tickets, memberships, and race registrations. Spot easily integrates with any booking platform and does all the heavy lifting to ensure your guests are covered. If your customer gets hurt, Spot can cover up to 25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductible. With Spot, your customers can focus on a full and quick recovery so they can get back to living their best lives. Visit autobounds.getspot.com to partner with Spot and provide your guests with an amazing experience while showing them that their health and safety are top priorities. A win for you, your business, and your community. So check it out. autobounds. Dot, get spot.com. And now, for my third and final sponsor, last but definitely not least, Mamut, Mamut North America. Go to Mamut.com, M A M M U T.com. As you all know, I've been wearing that fire dark cheddar kit. Uh, it's the best. I've been touring in it. I've been skiing the resort in it. It's super tech, super lightweight. It's packable. It's got a powder skirt, which I know a lot of people don't like the powder skirt. It's removable. Uh, Mamoot.com, Check them out. I mean, they really make grad stuff. They make beacons, probes, shovels outerwear their equipment's phenomenal i've got a backpack i think i'm gonna order another backpack i need a big backpack to go to tux in the spring for all you east coasters know what i'm talking about but again check them out mamut.com my guest this week is brian fairbank some of you might not know that name he's not a pro skier Uh, but he did just get inducted into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. He actually grew up in the hometown of Jamestown, which is about, I don't know, 60 miles from my hometown. He's a superstar of East Coast skiing and really revolutionized the entire ski industry. He's the first one to bring wind turbines to ski resorts. He owns or is the chairman of the Fairbank Group, which owns Jiminy Peak, Cranmore, and they manage Bromley in Vermont for all you East Coast skiers. You guys have all been to these resorts. Uh, He revolutionized short skis, and I'm not talking ski boards, I'm just talking short skis for people learning how to ski. Uh, It's a really fun conversation. I learned a ton which I can't always say I do in all of my podcasts. So I hope you enjoy it. It was a really good time. I enjoyed it. Brian, thank you for your time. Everyone go check out the US Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. Uh, I think that's something very valuable that we can really shed light on in the next couple of years and really bring that thing to life. Cause I think there's a lot of skiers who deserve to be in there and they're not necessarily in there yet. And we talk about that, um, but yeah episode 49 episode 50 of the pursuit
1: so um my name is brian fairbank and i've been in at Jiminy peak for 53 winters it's been my adult career to develop the ski area and along the way i've gotten very involved on a national ski area basis for about 20 years of my life um probably one of the uh uh claims to fame is we put in the first wind turbine on a North American ski resort in 2007, which was the postage stamp for us to show our environmental you know, sensitivity and responsibility. And that set the stage for other people in our industry to say, okay, what can I do to be more energy you know, conscious? Um, I've been the chairman of the National Skiers Association at the turn of the century. Um, I brought some uh, ideas to the forefront in the nineties that got absorbed in the ski industry with the use of short parabolic skis for teaching beginners and became a strong advocate of that being uh, a platform for the industry to say, how can we grow the sport by making it easier for somebody to become uh, hopefully a lifelong skier. Um, The Resort that I'm at now for the 53 years has two added to it. Uh, we added Cranmore uh, 12 years ago to our quiver, and we added Bromley as a management contract for the owner uh, 10 years ago. So we've been involved with other, we have, uh, we call ourselves the Fairbank Group, uh, and we're a small group of three ski areas and, and an uh, energy uh, company. That pretty much uh, sums it up. That's your.
0: That's a fifty-year career in a minute and a half.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: So what led? to I I, go ahead. I I've been
1: um, asked the question enough times that I think I've got it down, so I I don't have to bore people. But you know, there's all kinds of questions that then evolve about how did you get in the ski business.
0: That was my next question. How does that? How did you grew up in Jamestown? correct? Yep. Uh, I
1: grew up there and then I moved to Kenmore outside of Buffalo.
0: Yeah. So I'm in, uh, I grew up in Hamburg. I'm in Ellicottville, New York. Uh, okay. So, so I, I'm very familiar with your area and where you, you know, where you came from, but are you so- in
1: Ellicottville? Are you in Ellicottville now? Yeah. Oh my gosh. My best friend in the ski industry is Dennis Eschbach.
0: Oh yeah. He- Dennis knows me very well.
1: We, we talk to each other at least once a week. One of us may have a problem and call the other one for opinion or we call just to, you know, shoot the shit. Yeah, I know and, Dennis uh,
0: and his whole family very well.
1: Yep, they have a spectacular resort. They've just found oh, amazing it's, things to do. The, uh,
0: their return, uh, you know, the there's probably a proper term, but, you know, I'm not in the ski industry as far as that. But, like, the amenities we have and the amount of money that they put back into that place every year is, like, you know, I have my complaints. I'm a I'm a grubby local and that's always fine. You know, like that's part of it. But the, you know, we just put a brand new lift in and now they're putting another uh, high speed six pack in like our lodges are beautiful. It's they do an amazing job. And I, you know, I sometimes I hate admitting that on record, but it's uh, <laughs> yeah. Dennis, I've known for a long time. I just skied with his daughter, Maggie out at uh, she's at Sugar Bowl now. So she's doing the marketing out there. So, yeah, I know the whole family very well. So, I guess so. Yeah.
1: So, I, I grew up um, in Kenmore, New York. I, I was born in Jamestown. And my dad took me to a little uh, county park called Emory Park. Yeah. It was up outside of um, East Aurora. And I was six years old. And my dad put me on a pair of skis, and it, it was he parked on top. And he told me how to do a snowplow and said, that'll keep your speed under control. Just go ahead and go. Well, I went, you know, 80 feet and crashed and he ran down and said, you're doing great. And I tried again and I kept crashing and he never told me how to come up on a rope toe. So I had to watch at the bottom, but I remember probably two or three hours of skiing up and down that rope toe. And by the time we got back in the car, I was hooked on skiing. And um, lots of things transpired over my childhood that got me slowly, emotionally committed. And one of them was a, um, a, a guy named Arthur Draper, who was the um, general manager of Whiteface Mountain. And um, he, I was up on a camping trip with my parents, and I wanted to look at the ski area. And he happened to be out there, and I told him I was 12. And um, I said, gee, my dad and I have a place where we go hunting south of Buffalo called Blue Mountain. And, you know, I really think it's got the potential. And um, so I asked him if I got, you know, a, a map to send to him. Could he give me some comments back? That man sent me a two-page type letter, lots of little errors in it. I lost the letter in 1981 when I moved into my current house, which I wish I hadn't lost because it was a, a, another official that just made me get snagged in further into the industry. And I um, subsequently hiked Blue Mountain, ended up teaching skiing there when it got developed for a year or two. And um, so it, you know, engulfed my life from that point forward. I said, you know, I want to be doing something with skiing. Um, I also had an uncle who ran the ski school at Glenwood Acres and uh, Perry Fairbank. And uh, Perry... Um, was kind of like a, I was a kid brother, uh, 14 years younger than he is, but um, we always had a very fond relationship. And so seeing what he was doing to make a living in skiing, he did landscaping in the summer, skiing in the winter, and he did quite well at it. And so I you know, further got uh, involved with the industry. I um, ended up going out to Wisconsin to a place called Wintergreen that I went there as a the ski school director and the assistant manager and it was a brand new place being built and I spent a year and a half there and got a phone call to come back and interview with Jiminy Peak in uh, the summer of 1969 and the gentleman that I came in to meet was a guy named Fred Crane from the Crane paper company and Fred shared with me that the family board of directors had said to Fred you cannot, you're either going to run Jiminy Peak full-time, but you're not going to be our vice president of, you know, uh, of uh, uh, research. And he said, so um, if, if we can work this out, he said, I will be supportive of you over the phone. You can come see me anytime you want, but I need to lessen my time coming to the ski resort. Um, and so I obviously took the job and Fred became a dear friend, a mentor and uh, you know he was like 42 or 43 and uh, uh, ended up going sailing in the ocean with him. you know he, he was just a, a close um, companion of mine through life. We went helicopter skiing together. Uh, Fred Crane gave me an opportunity. And the opportunity was 53 years of my life being uh, embedded in Jiminy, and um, I, I don't have any regrets. I got to live a childhood dream. I had no idea where that dream was going to take me. I just knew that I had a passion for skiing, and and once I got involved with the management of the resort, um, you know, the passion still was you know burning inside me. But now I was able to do something about it
0: how old were you when you got that opportunity at jiminy peak
1: 23
0: 23 so you were he, he was taking a risk on you
1: yes he was he had for some reason he had a um a sixth sense that i would probably do everything not to let him down and uh i did that and uh four years later five years later um, he made me the president of the company and he became, quote, the chairman of the board. And we had a board of directors and stockholders and, you know, had, had uh, you know, quarterly meetings and, and all that stuff. That doesn't exist anymore now that we are, you know, it's owned by, you know, three of us. And uh, that's my partner, Joel O'Donnell. And Joel O'Donnell is another person who's a very wealthy man who we became partners in 1983. And uh, Joe's comment to me, which was never in writing, was, we just have to both agree that neither one of us ever gets more shares than the other. And, uh, and we've lived to that you know, the whole way through. So he's a 50-50 partner with my son, Tyler, and I. And my son, Tyler, um, left the business in 1999 and came back in 2008 because we had done the turbine and there was all kinds of uh, energy opportunities to develop a business with that. And so um, Tyler came back to to pursue that and assist with some of the management of the ski resort. And over time, the energy company took a back seat because of so many environmental regulations and tax law changes at the last minute. He, work on a project for a year and a half and then all of a sudden the tax laws would change and the numbers wouldn't work for that whole solar system anymore. So um, we then branched out because I think he wanted to do more than just follow in his dad's footsteps and branched out to Cranmore and to Bromley and he is actually the overseer of the operations of of all three of the resorts. Um, And uh, so uh, that's my life story.
0: Yeah, I mean, you seem, uh, clearly you've talked about it because you seem to have it, you know, you like not skip over steps, but you're like, yeah, then I did this for a minute and I did this. But I think the big, and maybe I'm wrong, but outside looking in, the big like, I don't want to say asterisks in your career, but like you brought wind turbines to a ski resort in the late 90s, correct? 2007. Oh, 2007. I'm sorry. I thought you said 99 for some reason, but um, but that was a never been done. That was like, you know, and it's, it's funny in the ski industry, we talk about being green and being, you know, sustainable and no one was really doing it. So my, my question to you, was it like a financial move? Was it an environmental move or was it both? Cause the investment initially is probably quite taxing, but eventually it should pay itself off.
1: The story of the turbine is worth sharing. Um, We started on the road in 2004 and first had to deal with getting permits, looking at financial feasibility studies and so forth. And fortunately, we got permits from our community rather quickly because the community saw it as a way to maintain jobs of people in Hancock. And therefore, it was an economic move that was important to us. The primary reason we pursued the turbine to begin with was because of energy costs involved with snowmaking. And the wind blows the most in November, December, and January when they're making the most amount of snow. And um, I went to our banker, and my banker looked at us like I had, you know, four eyes. He kind of said, you know, I you're in the resort business, not the energy business. And he did us a big favor um, in that he really handcuffed us to something that was calling, called renewable energy credits. The state wanted to see us put this turbine in because of their environmental efforts of sustainability. And so in 2006, we finally had the financing in place. We had the permits in place And we had a game plan that said, we need to buy a turbine. And we put a bid out to five companies and nobody responded. They didn't want to sell a one-off. It's kind of like holding a 20-person wedding versus a 200-person wedding. You know, the economics of the 200-person wedding outweigh the the small wedding. So um, I called our partner, Joel Donald, and said, do you know Jack Welch? And he said, yeah, I I see him, you know, some frequency. So he called Jack Welch, which was like on December 26th. And I got more emails from GE management in the next 48 hours than you could possibly imagine. I mean, there were like seven. And one guy from Quebec who we ended up dealing with, you know, um, with broken English uh, a lot through the process. They put us through the rigors of um, can we get the turbine up the mountain? And we had a weekly phone call with them every week religiously for an hour to an hour and a half and went through a whole bunch of checklist items. And um, the turbine that we had to buy from GE was 50% bigger than the one we had budgeted for. We budgeted for a 900kW machine instead of a one5 and um, so I had to go back to the banker and the banker said to me, holy smokes, you, you, you want to borrow $3 million, not $2 million. That's a big difference. And I said, that's the only turbine we can buy. And where he helped us, is he said, he knew about renewable energy credits. And there was a department in the state that was trying to encourage this type of investment agreed to buy our renewable energy credits for 10 years, which was about $100,000 a year. And that requirement from the bank made all the difference. It was Massachusetts Technological Collaborative, MTC. And uh, they came to the plate saying, if this is what it's gonna take for you to go invest this kind of money, we'll make that commitment to you long-term. It was not a big you know, strain on the state because they were able to sell those renewable energy credits in the marketplace. So they just they paid us and then put them back on the market and, and got their money back. But for us, that was the, the uh, final hurrah. Putting the turbine on the mountain was a much bigger feat than we GE was cautious about it. Some of the parts were so heavy that it took five bulldozers to pull the trailer up the mountain for the nacelle, which weighs, don't hold me to it, something like 25 ton. So, you know, 50,000 pounds of big machinery going up the mountain was a challenge. And I can tell you that the day the turbine pushed the button and the turbine turned was probably one of the uh, remarkable days in my career because it had taken so long to do it. It was so complex. I mean, the bigger challenge was getting an interconnection agreement with the power grid. You know, they had to, we had to put all kinds of safeguards in there that if there's an, a power outage that our turbine shuts off and cannot come back online until the power is restored, because if we were pumping power into a broken line, uh, it could be, deathly to a, to a uh, employee of the grid. So there were lots of complications with it. We got over, you know, uh, many of them, uh, the, the, uh, I could probably start telling more fish stories, but one more was three weeks before the turbine was to be delivered, GE did not like our lightning arresting capacity. And they wanted to make sure that the turbine wasn't going to get fried because it had to be grounded. And so we had to drill uh, 300 feet away from the turbine in both directions, a 200-foot um, well. And we had to take copper wire and put it in what's called grounding soil, which is black um, gunpowder type soil, not gunpowder, but you know it looks right.
0: like that. Consistency. And
1: we had to make sure that when it got to the hole in the ground, it had an arc. It couldn't have a right angle to it because the lightning needs to come down and get right down to the ground within a millisecond. And um, we had to find a solution to that, you know, within days. And knock on wood, we found a guy in Missouri who dealt with uh, lightning arresting uh, nationally, and he helped us get through the process. So the turbine had lots of hiccups in it.
0: Yeah, well, and it was, like, the first time it had been done at a ski resort, which, like, it shouldn't be that much different, but, like, you're putting it on top of a mountain versus, like, probably near a waterway or, like, somewhere flat. And, like, and then, but that was the standard. Like, you guys set the, you know, the gold standard for, like, what we come to know as like, clean energy at ski resorts. I don't know. I mean, you might know the number, but, like, it's a common thing now. It's what ski resorts are trying to achieve is to be, efficient use the energy you use and have everyone else buy the rest back i mean it's
1: and and what has happened because we end up developing a solar project tyler did that was too rich for our blood to to develop but we sold it to a developer and we take half the power from that solar system the combination of the turbine and the solar system means we now produce more power uh, of things we created than we use so we can truthfully say, you know, we're a hundred percent, you know, um, able to put out more than we use.
0: And then they buy it back, right? Like not to get into like finances, but that also helps the resort
1: with That's right. influx of yep. cash,
0: bad snow year, bad anything that can only help amenities, chairlifts, lifts, yep. the customer experience. Yeah. It's a, uh, Go ahead.
1: Oh, that the turbine was a milestone in my career. And uh, it's one of the reasons I think I got selected to the Hall of Fame was because that was a, a spearhead move along with the short skis. And in 2017, NSAA recognized me with a Lifetime Achievement Award. And that probably further facilitated my getting elected into the Hall of Fame because there were three major things that, you know, uh, happened by, with my involvement with NSAA besides being active on the board.
0: Did you ever think, you know, as a 23 year old that you were going to have all these achievements in your life? Or are you just like, cause I've talked to you for 20 minutes now and like, you don't seem like a banker. You don't seem like a, like an owner or a president. You seem like a skier who just happened to fall into some things and make the ski industry better. So like, I'd like to think that you're a ski bum at heart.
1: I'm a ski bum at heart and you're absolutely right. I never ever even had the thought process that I'd be elected into this hall of fame as recent as five or 10 years back. It wasn't, you know, like I, that's something I, uh, I wouldn't say I, I was aware of it, but I didn't believe that I would be credible enough to be elected. And, uh, it, it happened that I did. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really get any better than that. I mean, you're in the hall of fame. It's, and there's been some, you know, the, the hall of fame is coming back East this year, which is like a big talk and a big to do. How important do you think it is for the hall of fame to be back on the East coast?
1: Well, um, I think it's really important because an interview like this is taking place because of that. So the awareness of the Hall of Fame becomes um, uh, important to the Hall of Fame because we don't have, we have like 500 members in the Hall of Fame and we need, you know, 1,500 members. So anybody that comes to the induction ceremony is going to be exposed to the Hall of Fame in a way that they've never been exposed to it. Um, we got forced to come back east uh, and, and do two inductions. One's being done at Sun Valley later in March and the one at Bretton Woods because of COVID. We couldn't have a, a Hall of Fame induction two years ago. We couldn't have one last year. And so next year, there'll be one at Killington and there'll be one at Aspen. So we are I'm sorry. No, it's going wrong. Uh It's a uh, big sky. Okay, and so um, we have, um, uh pretty sure I'm right about that, and and so um, the ability to take advantage of the opportunity to say let's spread our wings and where we're doing it, uh, the problem created that opportunity, you know. So we had to necessarily find a way to recognize having a a banquet with. 18 people speaking, um, it it isn't any fun for anybody. No. So having a banquet for six people to talk, and and I've got my speech down to like four minutes and uh, kind of sharing what I'm sharing with you. And um, so that became much more palatable in terms of what we're doing. Um, I would say probably when we get through the COVID scenario, we will probably do one in the East and one in the West uh, most years, we'll take turns. We'll go to the East Coast one year, and we'll go back to the West Coast another year. Or the proximity of that, there may be one that uh, happens in Michigan um, along the way. So it it necessitates having a pretty good sized facility. Like Jiminy isn't big enough to host a, an induction. Uh, we just don't have the meeting space like the Mount Washington Hotel is in the convention business. And so they have the, the ability to put 200 people plus in a room and, and, uh, and still be able to, to, uh, rub, not rub elbows quite as tightly.
0: Yeah. Little, little space, especially now. I, I mean, three years ago we would have never even thought about it. We would have just said jam them all in a room and pack them like yeah. sardines, but the world's changed. And, you know, we all know, we're all aware of that. Um, <laughs> I do have a gripe with the Hall of Fame and I want hey. your opinion on it. Um, it's not really a gripe. It's just, I guess it's a, it's, I don't know. It's a two-parter. Why don't you think it, it feels small and I feel like it's just because of awareness as far as like people don't know that the ski and snowboard Hall of Fame almost exists. And I'm, I'm very baffled by that because it, it, it's out there. It's been happening. And then it's my two part is, it seems very hard for people to get into or inducted into the Hall of Fame. So as you are an inductee and you're going into the Hall of Fame, how does that come to life? How do they pick and choose who gets inducted, who doesn't? Because I feel there's a lot of skiers that or snowboarders that should be in it already that aren't and vice versa. So like, are you familiar with the process of how people get inducted?
1: I'm now the chairman of the Hall of Fame as of January 1st. It's a high-paying job. Um,
0: <laughs> high-paying volunteer.
1: Right. And um, the, uh, we're going to set up a subcommittee to work on the process to say, how do we improve it? And the way it works now is there's a selection committee of about 20 people that are you know noteworthy in the ski industry that go through narrowing down If there's 50 applications and the applications are usually done by a sponsor, um, you can't do it yourself. You have to have somebody else say, I'm gonna write a narrative up that's gonna convince this selection committee. And the selection committee then narrows it down to uh, pick a number, 20 people. Uh, From there, it then goes out to a election group of 200 to 300 people that get to vote on these people with a dossier on each person so that if they don't know that person, they'd be able to say, you know, uh, here's somebody that uh, I think should be recognized in the Hall of Fame. My election to the Hall of Fame, which was a year and a half ago, wound up being a tie um, and in terms of the vote. And I figured that the, the family that was being um, submitted is the Gorsuch family, which has the highest end ski equipment in the country, but they've done lots of give backs to the industry over time. And um, uh, I won on the second ballot that had to go out to, you know, another group of, I think there were 260 people, and I won by seven votes. The Gorsuch family subsequently, just like the the other Hall of Fames in baseball and so forth, your application can be um, considered for a t- three-year period. So that if you don't make it this year, your application still stays in the deck of cards. And um, um, if I understand it correctly, that's how the Football Hall of Fame works also, that you can be on a, the a, a sidebar. There is no question that you are spot on about awareness of the hall of fame. It is um, probably one of our biggest challenges in terms of saying, how do we get um, people to to, uh, support it? It's in Ishpeming, Michigan. And so I'll answer a question you might ask next. And that is, why the hell is it in Ishpeming, Michigan? And it was started back in the 1950s and in the 50s, Nordic skiing, jumping and cross country uh, racing were the prevalent um, parts of the ski industry in North America. There weren't many ski areas back in 1952. And so the United States Ski Association got started in Michigan, and then subsequently made it be the home for the hall of fame. There are people who say to us, why don't you move the Hall of Fame to Aspen, um, put it in a noteworthy place? And that's a financial challenge that you know we don't have a, a way to, to uh, address. So Ishpeming is the home of the Hall of Fame. I would dare say if it was at Aspen, you'd have more visibility. So what we're going to work on in the next couple of years while I'm chairman is the uh, prior chairman is trying to say, how do we get immersed and get involved with the ski industries of America, which is the supplier organization for boots and clothing and so forth. It's a um, a, a, a for-profit organization that is working for the betterment of the, the retailer and the supplier in the ski industry. So, Trying to work more collaboratively with other parts of the industry is gonna be one of our focuses as I sit in the seat for three years, because it comes right back to what you brought up. Somehow you have gotta be able to get the name out there and we don't have an advertising budget by any means. So how do you develop relationships with people that heighten the awareness? So that's probably a long answer to your question, but um, that's the truth.
0: No, it was a long. It was a long question. I didn't mean it, you know, any which way. I just mean it like, you know, I, obviously the ski industry isn't isn't the football industry, but like you know, the football hall of fame is a huge. It's probably a, you know, million dollar show, and the ski hall of fame is this little, you know, niche little thing. But I think people, and I'll speak for the public maybe, but like, I do think we care. We just don't know. And that's, you know, and it comes with conversations like this. And, you know, Dan Egan, that's how I know most of anything about the Ski Hall of Fame is like, what a great spokesman for the Hall of Fame and someone like Dan to just, you know, shine light. But I also think like and, you know, maybe I'm overstepping or whatever, but like maybe like a people's choice award. And like, maybe they're not in the Hall of Fame, but they just got like recognized by the public. And you have like certain criteria and like, but just like an online vote. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's just like, how do you get the people to care in something that I genuinely think we care about? We just don't know about it.
1: Yeah, that's right. I don't disagree with you.
0: Your comment. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, it's not, again, it's not a gripe. I said gripe, but it's not a gripe. It's just like. This should be bigger than it is. And why isn't it bigger? There's budget. Sure. This is a, you know, you're the president. You're not, you know, you're not, it's a volunteer. It's a bunch of people who are passionate about it and care. But I think there's a lot of people who are passionate and care who would help in some way, shape, or form. So it's just getting it out there. And I think, you know, recognizing, you know, evolving, always evolving and just getting, you know, the process I don't know too much about it. You explained it a little bit, but like, how do we get certain people in? And if it's an application process and that's how we do it, then like, how do we, how do I learn to get, you know, to promote somebody or to, to induct, not induct them, but like get them in,
1: get them in the process. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I, I will uh, take your comments to heart. And uh, one of the things that I think we've got to do is we've got to find the budget and the, the skill because we only have three employees and to uh, put out a newsletter twice a year that makes people aware of the hall and, and give something to the 500 members that we do have, but broaden it out to the SIA members and so forth to say, okay, how can we um, cost effectively make people more aware of the hall? We don't have a newsletter. We've never had one. So it, it's going to be a, a focus that I think we ought to take on. So,
0: yeah, it's an undertaking and I don't expect an answer. And I appreciate you, you know, listening to my gripe. <laughs> but I just think it yeah. isn't something that, like, you know, I don't know. Do you partner with like, and again, there's no, but like, do you partner with an SIA? Do it at a trade show. Everyone's already there. Yep. You know, Friday night, you do the award ceremony. People are there. They don't have to travel twice. They're there. It's all passionate people in the industry. Do you do it in an OR? Do you do it at Snowbound in Boston? Like, I don't know. It's, uh, and again, this is like, there is no answer, and it's just fun to talk about, but I, I do think it's just awareness, and I think a lot of it boils down to exactly what you said, is you're a three-man, three-man woman crew. It's time, it's money, it's time management. You're also running three ski resorts like it's not it's a but i think there is something there and i think it's only going to grow i think having these conversations is only going to help it grow but um
1: And, and dan egan is awesome
0: he, oh he's he the best just, uh, oh did i lose you nope I got oh, it. there you go i'm sorry. here sorry i thought i dropped you for a second yeah dan is the best he's a He is phenomenal. He's been on the show. Um, I've met him and, you know, he's – talk about a ski bum who's just made it, right? Like, he's just – that guy's a skier through and through, and he's not going to change, and he shouldn't change because he's phenomenal. Phenomenal human, great outlook on life. Uh, His new book is amazing. Like, the fact that a ski bum can pull that out of their brain and write collective sentences together is always refreshing. But (laughs) – uh, he, he announces the whole show, right? He's the host? Yes. Nice. Yes. That's-
1: uh, now, I'm new in the saddle. So, um, to the best of my knowledge, he's going to, you know, we haven't had an induction for two years. So, uh, because he's been so much a part of the focus over the last couple months, you may know more than I do, but he's the MC. Um, he, nobody could do it better.
0: Yeah. No one else, there's no one better to do it. It's just, he gets it. He understands it. He knows it. He can relate to every single inductee. I believe he is in the Hall of Fame officially now. I could be wrong, but yep. don't quote yep. me on that. No,
1: he but, is. He and his brother.
0: So. Well-deserved. Um, yeah, Brian, what else? Uh, when is the Hall of Fame? Let's talk about that. <laughs> Where is it? And like, how can people get involved if they want to get involved? Like, What's the best place for people to find you or the hall of fame or send a donation or show up and buy a ticket? Like what is the best way for people to get involved?
1: So, um, because the Bretton woods can only seat 200 people, all the seats for that, which are pricey, but they're a beneficiary of the hall of fame. The hall of fame becomes a beneficiary of that induction. I Pretty sure Justin would. I don't think there's any seats left. If there are, there's just a couple. So by industry outreach, we're able to, you know, kind of fill the auditorium. The one at Sun Valley, which I'm going to go out to, um, the Brentwoods one is on March 5th. The one in Sun Valley is, I'm pretty sure it's March 25th. And um, that has uh, four to 500 people coming to it. So it's a, uh, let me make sure I've got the right date. It's March 26th. Okay. It's in Sun Valley. Yeah. Go online to, uh, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I don't even know what the uh, uh, Hall of Fame's, uh, <laughs> how you get into it to get the information. I think it's the US, you probably can type it right there on your computer and say, yeah, okay, I'm going to try to look
0: it up. Ski... See, and we'll put the um, actual link in the notes. ski dot I think, is the easiest way to get there. Yep, yep. SkiHall dot com.
1: Well, thank you. Now I know that I can answer that question quickly. I appreciate you doing it.
0: Yeah, that's easy one. I'll put that link in the notes too. Uh, I think the best way to get involved is. Go to ski hall.com, join the mailing list, you know, and just ask, I think get involved in any way you can. The museum the, the is memberships.
1: a hundred dollars a year. So it's a, a token, you know, a membership, but the participants uh, as members don't really get any grandiose benefits. They get the ability to go into the gift shop will be due. And uh, you know, so, getting a newsletter out there to tell people about the upcoming event in Brentwood's—if you'd like to attend—you know, right now the only way you could know about it was to go um, uh, inbound, whereas we've got to do some stuff outbound.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you—you you have addressed, or at least are aware of the issues that come with this and now you're the new man in charge so it's I'm interested to see how it's going to change and how the outreach is going to look and always happy to have these conversations and try to shed some more light on it Uh, I think Dan is a perfect ambassador for it and John Um, so I'm excited I'm excited to see what happens uh, as we move forward I'm excited to see I think I can I think yeah you guys do like a recap of the show after the show so there should be I don't know if you full live stream the whole event or if you just do full recap, but um yeah, I'm excited. Follow everybody follow them on Instagram. I mean, those are all the easy ways, right? Like right away. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh Brian, thank you so much. I appreciate Thank your you. Time. Nice to meet you. And just like that, episode fifty of the pursuit on the out collective. I am your host At Mr. Adam X Follow me on Twitter Follow me on Instagram Follow at Out of Collective On all of your Favorite socials Thank you again To Brian That was a really Fun convo Like I said I learned a lot Um It's fun It's fun to learn It's fun to know About ski history I'm definitely Not a wizard of it Um I'm always trying To learn So that was a great Conversation ton of fun Thank you again Brian Um Anything else going on? Jabber, uh, the Out of Bounds podcast. Uh, they just finished their studio, so that's super exciting. We've got a ton of stuff rolling out. We've got gear reviews. If you have gear you want reviewed, if there's something you want to see us review, t- uh, like tips, tricks, mountain bike season's coming, how to lube your chain. You know, we want to we want to provide more for you guys. So anything you want to hear, anything you want to see, let us know and. And that's really it. Uh, I'll be out west for the next two weeks. So if you are listening to this and you are out west, please reach out. Let's go skiing. Let's ride bikes. And that's it. Um, I'm Adam X. And I'll see you tomorrow.